thank you for joining episode two of Body Talk with Bex. In this episode, I will be actually interviewing my own mom and asking her a little bit more in-depth questions about what it was like to raise a kid with a medical condition right from the get-go. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for joining. recording now okay <laughs> all right so I thought of another question that you can just answer real quick to kind of prep how the rest of my upbringing is going to go what was the pregnancy like and was I early oh well yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we back up and do your brother too Sure. Okay. So with your, with your brother, I went into labor. I I threw up the entire time. It's the pregnancy is the most miserable experience of anybody's life. It's to prepare you for childbirth is what it's to do and endless sleepless nights. So anyway, threw up pretty much the whole time. And then I went into labor eight weeks early and ended up uh, at eight weeks, I ended up at Stanford, which is, you know, a hospital, you know, 50 miles away or whatever. And um, I was there for a week. And then I was on their grounds for two weeks. They have apartments that you can live in. And your grandmother came and took care of me while I was on complete bed rest. And then I went into labor and had him five weeks early. They said there was absolutely no reason that should have happened the entire thing. He came out perfect, came home the next day. And then, and then with you, good Lord, I was violently ill again. That's how I knew I was pregnant. I sat down one morning and had breakfast and then threw up and I'm like, oh, must be pregnant. And then I went into labor. I'm going to say, gosh, I think it was 13 weeks early and was on bed rest. And at that point, they, the hospital had been upgraded here that you could have a child early here. So they didn't send me immediately over the hill. And I, so I stayed at home and let's see, I was on bed rest for nine weeks and I had you four weeks early. So, but none of that has anything to do with your birth defect. Statistically speaking, bladder extrophy kids aren't, doesn't have anything to do with being premature. That was just extra fun. Yeah. Yeah. But it was also just kind of foreshadowing, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hindsight is foreshadowing. Yes. Nine weeks of bed rest is not as much fun as you would think it is, especially when you have an almost three-year-old. Oh boy. I can see how that would be uh, hard to handle. Fun. Fun, yeah. fun. All right. So the first real question, I guess, was since you didn't know ahead of time that I was going to have a birth defect because they thought I was going to come out fine. What was that moment like when I was born and either you realized something was wrong or they thought it was wrong? Can you just kind of explain that whole process? Yeah. I mean, the, having it be my second child, you know, there's certain expectations. Um, you know, when I had your brother, they whisked him away right away because they thought there was going to be something wrong with him. So they had actually a pediatric team sitting there waiting for him to be born. And so they took him before I got to see him and, and then he was fine. So then they do the whole dumping him on your chest and that whole kind of bonding thing. And then with, with you, so I didn't really have a great idea of what it should be like, since that was the first experience. But when I had you, it was, I don't know, they were just sort of, I don't know, they acted weird. It was, it was awkward. They didn't bring you to me right away. They just acted weird. And I I don't really know how else to put it. I mean, you know, I'm staring at the ceiling, you know, so I don't have the greatest perspective of what's going on in the room. They took you and your dad out of the room. Again, I'm staring at the ceiling and I felt alone at that point, but apparently your aunt and your grandmother were in the room, but 
grandmother was traumatized enough by the whole thing that they sort of, I didn't really notice them. So, so I knew, I knew something was off, but when they did come back in the room and they just kind of explained that they, that they needed to put you under the warmers or the, what it just didn't make any sense, but I was having excessive bleeding. So they had to give me a shot and I had to lay there even longer. And then finally, when I was able to go in the other room and see you, there was uh, a pediatric, uh, there was a pediatrician there and it was actually, he was old enough that I knew him from when I was a kid. He was an old pediatrician and you were laying there in all your little beautifulness. And um, he had a textbook open next to you and he was flipping through the pages, trying to find a picture of what he was looking at. And that was sort of my first uh, thought that perhaps we were at the wrong hospital. Yes. <laughs> to put it to put it mildly, it didn't invoke a whole lot of confidence in our current situation. So, yeah, a, yeah. a, a little a little shocked, a little uh, you know, a, probably a, a little bit robotic in my responses to things. Not great. You were you were just adorable. <laughs> so. What, what exactly happened from, from there then? Like when did they actually figure out what was wrong and were the process of them telling you? I think, I think they didn't tell me really what was wrong. I, I think they, they certainly didn't have a name for it or anything like that. They were just, you know, you were, you were born open from the sternum all the way down to the wazoo and your bladder was on the outside of the body. And I think that's what they were trying to identify because it didn't really look like a bladder because it was inside out and undeveloped. So it was just kind of this thing hanging out of you, but your abdomen was completely open. I, I'm not sure. I think they may have identified it as a bladder. I, I really don't remember, but they did call the specialty hospital Stanford where I had your brother and they have a pediatric ambulance that they actually uh, send from Stanford with a whole pediatric team so they were already on their way as pretty much I think as soon as you were born they called them and so they they came and they took you away so and I was not discharged yet so they they loaded you up and just chatted with me briefly and then they took you away from me <laughs> that doesn't feel great no no it, it, it wasn't great and I was obviously itching to get out of there and as you know as soon as the um obstetrician came in it was like just just get me out you just wanted to go with me yeah yeah and then you know your dad drove like a bat out of hell um over 17 which you know is a really windy windy road. road it's a freeway but it's it's not the greatest drive when you're having your afterbirth contractions and all, all of that. Because oh, so, you contract after you have a baby, your uterus contracts to come back down to size. So you're still having not birthing contractions, but they're not a party when you're going high speed and cornering. So, right. but, but we got there very, very soon after you at, at Stanford Hospital. And I assume they handled it a little bit better than Dominican did with keeping you up to date on what was going on or. Yeah, they, they had, you know, they're, they're just more prepped for emergencies and trauma and absolutely everything else. So, so the nursing staff and just the people, you know, asking what your name is and trying to connect you to where you need to be are just much more on it and, and very, very together. And they had, they had already identified what you had. I, uh, the pediatric urologist was already in with you. And so I, I was taken in there to meet her and with, with your dad and uh, just kind of get the general game plan of, of what they were thinking. Okay. So is that how we initially found the urologist at Stanford that we stuck with for a while? Yes. Yes. She was the pediatric urologist there. And she, uh, you also had a general pediatric surgeon. They, it's a team team thing. It was, a, you know, it was a five hour surgery. They didn't do it right away. So when I, when I met with her, she uh, said they were, the, the plan was to do the surgery in a couple of days. I think you had it on day three, 
is when you ended up having your big surgery because they just wanted to make a plan for future as well, try to figure out how to close you to the best of their abilities. But they also were going to run a chromosome test to make sure that you were female. So again, she, her, her wording, of course, this is, you know, 30 years ago, but her, her wording was they wanted to make the best decisions for you going forward. So they wanted to be, they just wanted to do a chromosome test to be sure. But then, like I said, your abdomen was open. So she took her tiny little gloved hands and actually opened up your abdomen and showed me that she's like, I'm pretty sure she's a girl because there are her ovaries. So that, you know, wasn't exactly how I wanted to see my child for, you know, close to the first time. Um, Good <laughs> and, Lord. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, aren't you lucky that I am pretty rational and just going to stand here and answer your questions when I want to smack you for showing me that? Yeah. So, and, and also this is my beautiful baby girl and duh, she's a girl, it's Becky. <laughs> so, you know, um, well, if I have and, ovaries that she's looking at, you know, yeah, but I, I realized they had to do their due diligence and do the chromosome test, but I mean, it was, it, you were clearly my, my baby girl. So we didn't really like her from the start. I really wanted to like her but it was quite clear that she didn't, you know, that doesn't show that you have the greatest uh, maybe empathy or uh, bedside manner, or she was just very, very clinical, very kind of cold. Your pediatric surgeon was absolutely fabulous. I loved him. I mean, he was just, he was kind and he was engaging. And so I really communicated a lot more with him than with her, even though she was really in charge of you. Okay. So a quick little switch here. How did caring for me as an infant differ from caring from John? Oh gosh, you, you guys were polar opposites anyway. Right. He was, he was, he was a sleeper. So, I mean, he came home that first night and you know, he slept for five hours. So you were not a sleeper. You, you liked to be awake all the time and seeing what was going on. So that was, that was a completely different scenario. And then, you know, you, your legs had to be wrapped as one unit because, because you were splayed open that bone right across the front, I'm blanking on the name of it, was not fused. So I had to take the bone. Um, yeah, it's, it's got a, it's got a little name to it though. It's a, can't remember. We'll have to look it up, but I had to take your little legs and kind of rotate them in. And then we would wrap you with an ACE bandage kind of from your waist sideways, all the way down to your little ankles. So you'd be wrapped as one. So Clearly that doesn't work well with a diaper. So you had to wear a diaper. <laughs> side. So you kind of had to wear your diaper side saddle. So it would be wrap, wrap you and, and the it was a mess was every tied. time. It was a total mess. Every time I had so many ACE bandages because <laughs> every single time you had to change, not only the diaper, but the ACE but bandage. Also, yeah. Yeah. And you had an incredible diaper rash because your little legs were pinned together. So everything was just always wet and miserable. Yeah. So it was just a lot more when you were in the hospital for the first two, three weeks of your life. So, so that, that was, that was very different, you know, emotionally, it's hard to, cause I wasn't staying there cause I had a three-year-old at home. So I was going back and forth every day. And having to pump out breast milk and take it because they wanted to give you the breast milk, which was good, but it was, you know, not fun to be getting up every three, four hours at night and pumping and not having the actual child there. Yeah. So, and they were measuring everything that was going in and out. So even when I was there, a lot of times they would prefer that I gave you the bottle of breast milk, but then the pediatric surgeon kind of put an X on that and we we went ahead and breastfed when I was there with you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So you just, you, you required more, just more, more, uh, you just more attention. I was going to say more laundry, more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was just, you know, I, I mean, with, with, with your, with your brother, you know, 
your grandmother, everybody was afraid to handle you. I mean, everybody held you, but in terms of the changing the diaper, that was, it was not a shared uh, event. I, I took care of all of that. And that was a long time we were doing that. I want to say it was like eight weeks we were wrapping you or I don't know. It went on forever. Even, even with dad, you would just, I, I, I did, I did the wrapping. How did, um, how did John react? Cause I know he was super excited to have a little sister on the way. He was, and being on bed rest at home for nine weeks, you know, he was very, very involved in, in, uh, taking care of mommy in bed. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, he was extremely excited. I, you know, he was not even three. So, you know, to explain it in, in baby, you know, kid terms, I just said that you weren't finished yet. And you were at the hospital being finished and we just left it at that. So other than that, when you came home, you know, you just still weren't finished. We were, we were just finishing you, you know, most people finish the baby when they're still inside. I had you early, you weren't finished yet. We were just finishing you. So, and he always just accepted that, asked too many questions other than that. So was he careful whenever he was around me or... He was super involved. I mean, as soon as you got home, he wanted to hold you. He held you in the hospital. He, he held you all the time. Now I would put him in a chair because he was almost three, you know, so he was little. It's not like he was walking around with you, but he always wanted to hold you. He wanted to wrap you. He wanted to help with bath time. He, he was, he was really helpful to me because you were, you were more work. So if we had to go somewhere, you know, it wasn't just taking extra diapers. It was taking extra wipes and the stuff for the diaper rash and making sure I had a clean outfit for you and a couple ace bandages and the clips for the ace bandage. And, you know, it was just, he was, he was very helpful. He would run and go get whatever I needed and help me load the car. And he really entertained you a lot. I mean, infants don't need a lot of entertainment, but you were, you were very alert he liked to entertain too, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he kept you laughing and he, he really, in, but you were a very alert baby. You were very aware of what was going on around you. We have lots of pictures of John reading to me much before I could understand, you know, words and lots of pictures of him hiding under doormats to make, make you laugh. laugh. Yep. Yes. He would do anything to make you laugh. Yeah. And in fact, there's a book, uh, it, what was it? It was like three feet by two feet. It was a big cardboard book you guys had that would obviously read on the floor because it was huge. And there's a picture of him hiding inside it, you know, and peeking out at you. Yeah. But we, we actually bought that book at the toy store while you were having your first surgery. So, you know, just to get out of the hospital and away, cause it was a five hour surgery. So, you know, we got out and we went to the little mall right down the street, went to the toy store and I probably got you a stuffed bunny who you were flooded with bunnies. <laughs> and I got him that book while, while we were there. Then we went back to the hospital. <laughs> That's cute. So we're going to go back to the Stanford doctor again. Oh, good. And uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I briefly mentioned in the first episode that we stopped seeing her when I was about three or four, roughly. And uh, I kind of wanted to go back and talk a little bit more from your perspective of why we left kind of that last day. There, there was a, a buildup to that last day, but you know, we, you had a pediatrician here at home. Again, this hospital, we're going to visit these doctors at are you know, an hour away. And, you know, for a while, I, I can't remember how often we had to go every month and then it was every like two months or I, I can't remember what the, what the timing was of it. I I'm, we probably went to every three months at one point, but you, you had to go fairly frequently over there and we would see both the pediat uh, the pediatric surgeon, we would see him for, you would have ultrasounds, you'd have tests where you would be taken away from me and they would do that when I wasn't there. And then then we would see the pediatric surgeon and he would play with you and tell you how cute you were and you'd laugh and everything would be fabulous. And then we would see her. And the first thing she would do is do an exam on you so that you would be screaming bloody murder 
And then she'd be like, you can, you can hold her now. And then she would talk to me while you were screaming bloody murder on my shoulder. And I'm trying to get you quiet. And so it was just really hard to think of what I wanted to ask her or communicate with her. And at that very last visit, I was expressing to her that you seemed to be able to run to the bathroom and hold it and then pee once you got there. And, and you weren't dribbling all the time. It seemed like you had these weird periods of, of dryness where you seemed to be semi in control. You weren't at all at night, you were completely incontinent. But during the day, I don't, it was, it, it seemed to me that you had these like little periods where you would run to the bathroom and then and actually use your little porta potty thing. And she told me that that was not possible. And that a lot of parents, you know, that's what they want to see in their child. And she was scheduling you for surgery to basically, they were going to close everything up and you would just be using a catheter the rest of your life to pee. And that was the surgery they were going to do. I believe you were going to be four. So you were probably three at the time. So she was just basically scheduling that. And that's what we were going to do next. And I was kind of trying to convey that maybe I didn't quite want to go down that road because I wasn't sure that's what was going on with you, that this was necessary. You were having a few uh, bladder infections. You were having frequent bladder infections. And so this was going to fix that. I don't know how this was going to fix this, but this was going to fix that. And so when we left there, and of course, mind you, you're screaming bloody murder while I'm having this conversation with her at three clinging to me. So it's not like a tiny little infant screaming. It's a full blown, you would like to wait. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Thrashing little body. And, and we walked out and I knew what I was feeling. You know, I was, I was feeling like I wanted to kill her, but no, I I was feeling not hurt. I was feeling like I really wasn't sure this was the right decision for you. There was a lot of conflict and we walked out those little, you know, push doors open and your aunt was with me and she's the one that said, well, we're not going back here, are we? And it was like, oh, thank God she said that, you know, because I'm like, no, we're, we're not. I mean, we need, we need to get a second opinion. This is a, because once they did that surgery on you, that was going to be it. There was no reversing it. Um, there was no, it, yeah, at the time there was no reversal of that. They were just closing you up and this was going to be that. And, the, and they'd also given me the names of several people to talk to who were adults that have spent their entire lives capping themselves. So this, this is what they did back then. So yeah, I, I wanted, so I was going to start just with a second opinion and I called, you know, pretty much the next day saying I, I wanted your records because I was getting ready to go for a second opinion And the woman who answered the phone said, well, you really don't have time for that. She's because your doctor, I almost said her name, your doctor was just wrapping everything up because she was scheduling you for surgery. So they, she was wrapping everything up because she was going to be going on sabbatical for a year. And I thought, well, now that never came up in the appointment. And at what point was she planning to tell me, oh, by the way, I'm going to do this major surgery on your daughter and I'm going to be gone for a year and you're going to have some other doctor taking care of her. I mean, that should have come up at some point in the, this is why we want to do this now, now this, these are your, but there was just no, she was just very distant or she was terrible. She was. Emotionally unattached and wasn't really looking for quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. 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 Trying to be kind here, but anyway, got all your records in and found the absolute godsend of a doctor. So, yeah. You know, the, the other thing is, is um, I can't remember the name of it. It's like when you, when you're born with a birth defect in California, you're, you're covered by a different kind of insurance. There's, there's some children's uh, services, something. But so a lot of your doctor's visits were paid for, they had to do with your bladder, were paid for through this state program. And taking you out of California meant that I lost that. So all of a sudden we were going to have some real medical bills. Um, to deal with, yeah. To deal with because we did take you out of state. So in terms of our insurance and 
state and everything else. It, it just, it, that, that is a scenario that weighs in on people's lives. Yeah. It has been, I mean, I was very lucky to have a family that figured it out and yeah, well, you have to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Moving right along. So growing up after all of that, I'm thinking, you know, rest of grade school, junior high and all that, what were some things that you had to think about when raising me? So for instance, as an example, I didn't wear jeans until the fifth grade, just because I, I couldn't make it to the bathroom in time to, you know, unbutton and unzip and things like that. So what? Were, I was streamlining your process is what I was there doing. There you go. Yes. You're streamlining <laughs> my process. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, I, I think it was difficult all along. There were, um, you know, just, I'm going to just do simple things like kids put their parents, put their kids in gymnastics and, and ballet and all those kinds of things. Now, both those things require leotards. And so if you're wearing, you know, some sort of pad or diaper, it's, it's visible. And so when you're not continent and you're, you know, four years old and you are absolutely refusing to put the pad in the um, leotard. And it was only an hour class. And I was giving you just like a little light day, thin, like the smallest thing known to mankind in there. And you refuse to wear it. Can't have you peeing on their equipment and their pads, which is happened one time. And, you know, I said, this is your choice. We either don't do gymnastics or you put the pad in your leotard and guess what? we no longer did gymnastics because you wouldn't put the pad in the lid. <laughs> and I, you know, you can't have people peeing on the equipment, you know, that's just, or on the instructors because they're picking you up and spotting you, you know, it's just not. So, you know, you, I took you out of gymnastics, but then you would wear it for ballet, which made no sense to me whatsoever. It's the same stupid leotard, but maybe you wanted to do ballet more. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, it was those kinds of things that I had to think about. Um, it was spending the night at people's houses. Um, we always had everybody spend the night at our house. So you had, you know, your, your waterproof pad in your bed and you had access to pull-ups and you could just, you know, in a nightgown, you can't really tell you're wearing a pull-up and you could just like zip in the other room and change it and come back and your friends would never know. You could change your clothes easily at home it was just so much easier at home and it was too much of a risk that you were going to be wetting on somebody's mattress. So we did all slumber parties and overnights at our house, which, you know, really other mothers really liked because we, <laughs> we had everything at our house, but that, that was in, and in school, you always had to have an extra set of clothes in a little plastic bag in your backpack. Um, you had a complete change of clothes in there and you know, I had to tell your teachers, you know, Becky may just like zip out of the classroom and you need to let her go. She doesn't have time to raise her hand and ask and all that. She's not, she's going to go to the bathroom when she needs to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Finish. End of discussion. So, but I, you know, in terms of school also, I, you know, we had a, a bladder extrophy newsletter that we got um, from the support group and, you know, they would have these horror stories about their kids getting teased in school and um, things that were done to them to, to make them pee on the playground, because um, it's fairly easy to get you guys to do that. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I wasn't willing to even risk that factor at all. So I did put you in private school. So it was very small class sizes. I knew absolutely every child that you came in contact with. And it was just a more controlled environment and it was a lot safer for, for your little psyche. Yeah. I never wanted you to feel like a victim because you, because you're not. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember that pretty clearly. Yeah. We, we, you did everything. We, we went everywhere. You went camping. We, we did everything, but I, yeah, I never wanted you to feel singled out or um, like a, like a victim. I just didn't want you to go there. Yeah with your whole personality. I just didn't want to go there. It drives me crazy. <laughs> I know it does. <laughs> Bad things happen to everybody. You know, you, yeah. you roll with the cards you're dealt and you do the best you can. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So 
you kind of touched on the bladder atrophy newsletter. So that kind of goes into the next question actually of we attended a support group once and I kind of wanted to know what that experience was like. Um, how did you find the support group and what was your support system outside of the bladder estrophy support group? Um, we actually went to two meetings, but you were a complete infant at the first one. And I think it was actually um, our local pediatrician that let me know that there was a little group that was meeting and, the, and there were um, four, four of you in the county that we, that I knew of that had bladder extra. And I want to say all under pretty much all under a year, every, everybody, buddy there was an infant and they had, uh, and it was, so the meeting was just at one of the ladies' houses. So it was these, you know, three other women and, and their little babies, and then the siblings of, and, you know, I went to one meeting and I had John with me and see, now this is that victim thing. And I'm going to sound like a terrible person. I'm just, well, for starters, it's completely different when you have bladder estrophy in a boy and a girl, because girls are nice and symmetrical. So when you're split open down the middle, everything, your fallopian tubes are nice and separate and you've got both ovaries, you know, and everything's kind of down the sides. There's nothing major down the middle. And I don't know how else to say it other than the penis is filleted open for a lot of the ones right. that have extrophy of the bladder that are boys. And so it's penile reconstruction and it's some major horrible surgeries when you're a boy. Right. So the three other people in the support group had boys. So I had like this totally different scenario going on in my life than they did. And I, I'm just, they were whiny, you know, and I, they were just, I don't know. They the were parents just whiny. Or the boys, the parents that the three other were just, they were whiny and poor me and overprotective of the children and the siblings, not that they all had older siblings, but there was one in particular, he was totally out of control. And I thought, you know, you need to be spending some time looking at this one over here. And poor John was just sitting like glued to me because the kids were so out of control. And we just, the three of us just sat there together and I'm thinking, I'm never coming back here. How do I get out of this room? And so as we never went back. So that was the first one. And then I never went back to another support group until you asked. And we went to one and that was at the hospital. It was, that was actually just a building at Stanford was like across the way. And so it was all the people that were treated there with it. I had a, a big support group. And so it was like a family, oh, I want to say it was like a family picnic day where the kids got to go play. And then there were going to be lectures, people presenting stuff that the parents needed to hear or thought they thought that we needed to hear. And so that's what that was. And how was that one? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I can tell by your face that you weren't enamored with that experience either. Well, you know, you were so afraid that you wouldn't have anybody to play with and you wouldn't have anybody to talk to that you made your brother go. So you, you sweetly asked your brother to go. So you'd have somebody to hang out with. And he of course said yes. And so once again, he's like glued to my side we sat there and listened to all the lectures and you ran off and played with all of the healthy sibling. I'm just going to say healthy just to do a distinguishing factor, but yeah, you were playing with all of the siblings. So you were playing with all of the brothers or the sisters of the kids that were in with their parents listening to the lectures. So, and, and you, and I'm going to quote you, you said, well, I don't have anything in common with those people. Now, these, these people had the same birth defect as you did, but you didn't have anything in common with them. And you didn't, you really didn't. And I, and I think it's just part of not buying into being a victim and not, not letting it define you and, or letting it make you be a better person. And I don't know, Yeah. but you, you went and played with all the other kids outside and ran around. Well, you know, <laughs> can't let something that you can't control, hold you back from playing tag. No, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> so there you go. 
so then since we didn't really attend bladder estrophy support groups um, consistently, what was your support system? Like, I know we, we had Aunt Jean went to all our doctor's appointments with us. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. So on, on that front, um, yes. So I had my sister, your Aunt Jean, and she went to, like you said, she went to absolutely everything. Now, I just want to point out that when your brother was born, I, two of your aunts went with me to his first just regular pediatrician appointment. And so the three of us are sitting there with this little six pound, five and a half pound baby. And the pediatrician walked in who had been my pediatrician. And he just looked at us and said, it's really taken all three of you to take care of this baby. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, and yes, it did and does still to this day. But so I think my support system has, has really not been any different than what it was with your brother, other than he didn't have physical issues that we had to deal with all the time. So I don't think I necessarily had a bigger support system than that. It, it was the, I had the same support system for both of you, just I needed more help with you for doctor's appointments and that sort of thing. But I, I didn't have anything else extra that I can think of. Okay. Um, but yeah, in terms of talking things over and trying to figure out what to do next, I, I had my sister. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I could talk to your grandparents about, it, but they gave, they, they were not helpful at all in terms of giving advice. It, it was really a figure it out yourself kind of thing. Yeah. So I mean, not, not that, not that, that, not that they were responding that way. It was just way outside of their scope. Yes. Yes. They, they didn't know how to research things the internet was, I don't want to say was very new, but it was new to have a computer in your house. It was new Google or anything like that. No, exactly. You really had to figure things out yourself. Yeah. But they were around in terms of, um, picking us up from school and making dinners and taking care of your brother was a big one. They, they took care of your brother a lot when, I would be leaving to, for example, we ended up in Seattle. That's where your doctor was. So we would right. go to Seattle for a surgery or an appointment. And he, John went with us a couple of times, but for the most part, he stayed with grandma and grandpa when I took you. Yeah. And Jean would go. Yeah. So you had people to rely on that were there. Yes. To help out, even if it wasn't necessarily for advice. Yes. Yeah. Now I was actually a part of a mother's group from when John was born and through quite a bit of, of your younger, probably to about four, I think three or four. And I remember after, after you were born and you had come home and I, I want to say you were about six, six months old. And one of the other people in the mom's group asked me, she's like, have you had time to grieve yet? And it just struck me as such an odd comment. I mean, I do understand that it would have just been an absolute party and a half to have like this perfect little, well, I did have a perfect little baby, but one that didn't need to be finished yet, you know, to to have, you know, I, I understand what she was trying to say, but to me, I had this beautiful baby girl, you know, and, and you were getting better and you were going to be better. And it wasn't like life, life threatening. Um, of course it was a couple of times, but, right. um, it just struck me as an odd, it was a hard thing to talk to other mothers about. It was a hard thing to find a support group because everybody is just so one way or the other way. And, and I don't, I don't know. I just didn't, you're per- You were perfect. So that, kind of the, what am I grieving? Yeah. And, and I under- response to her question, yeah, I was like, what under- am I grieving? Yeah. And I understand that, that, yes, we could have gone down the, this is sad and this is horrible road. And that's exactly what that first support group was about. It was all poor pitiful me. Right. Or you can make the best of this situation because you do have this beautiful little baby and let's, let's go make a fabulous life for her. How about that? Right. (laughs) Two ways to look at it, you know? Right. So, you know, I, I did have a hard time you know, talking about some things, you know, with your condition, because people would just go down the, Oh, that's so sad. You know, and it's like, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do here. And, you know, you're not helping the situation. 
<laughs> no, no, she's in ballet. She's happy. <laughs> yeah, she's fine. She's fine. She likes to hang upside down by one foot. Um, I did enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it, it was, it was a hard, hard. Th- I mean, I really am very thankful. I had the sisters that I had and have yeah. both. They're still here. Yeah. Jean and <laughs> Carol and Suzanne, all of them. Exactly. All of them. <laughs> yeah. We used to stay with Suzanne up in Seattle and, and Carol came to one of your surgeries too, because Jean couldn't make it because she was sick. And so, you know, there's, I, oh, so that, so that time. really was, that really was my support system, even though they didn't all live here. Yeah. So they still were a support. All right. Next question. So you and I have always been pretty much on the same wavelength as far as, um, you know, what kind of care I needed to have and kind of the outlook on life. And, um, as I got older and going through college and, you know, being able to make my own medical decisions, I've had to figure that out as well. Kind of put myself in your shoes for, for once. And, uh, you got used to me calling you like every other week, asking you questions of how do I deal with this doctor? How do I say this? How do you think we established that kind of connection and maintained it? So like, did you include me in decisions as a kid? Did you explain things to me as it was happening? I mean, I never felt awkward having to ask you about medical things. It wasn't like taboo to talk about in our house household. I always felt like you would tell me, you know, an honest answer of what's going on, regardless of how bad it is, if I just asked. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, that's an age by age thing. Just like me telling the three-year-old that you weren't finished yet. You know, obviously at some point we did tell him what was going on and what happened and subsequent surgeries and that kind of thing. But, you know, at the time you have to give them the information they can handle at the time. So that, that changed as, as we went along. I, I wouldn't say I included you in decisions, like when you were seven, you know, um, you know, that, that would have happened later on, but I did include you in, I'm making the list of questions for the next doctor's appointment, you know, so I'd be sitting at the table and I would be making my list of questions. And I'd be like, is there anything you want to ask? And I don't know if you remember this, but, oh God, what did you ask? You, you wanted your own list. So you made your own list of questions that I didn't even see. And so when we went to see your, your surgeon, you know, they always knew I had a list of questions because we would only see him like every six months. So, or even, even once a year. So there was going to be a list of, Hey, this is going on. Where are we going from here? And what did you, you asked, Oh gosh, I believe you had been in the hospital over a holiday. And so when you went the very next time, you asked what his wife did when he was when when he was at the hospital on holidays. Um, it was something to do with that. It was like, how does how does your wife deal with this? You know, and he just sat there and looked at you. <laughs> and and he's like, is that really on your list? And you and you said yes. And you were looking at him very expectantly with your cute little smile. And so he answered you. He's like, well, we have five grandchildren and, you know, and this is, this is what we do. And she's very involved with the symphony here and, and in fundraisers. And she has her, her whole old life that she has things going on when I am here. And then you moved on to your next question that I believe was actually related to medical stuff. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it was just, you know, it was so but anyway, the point is you were always, I had you making your own list and, and you and I had you interacting with the doctor and the nurses yourself. So from a very early age, you were communicating, you know, when you were in the hospital, for example, and something was happening and I knew a nurse was coming in, I would, you know, tap you and say, this is your chance to, to say such and such. And if you didn't, then I would say it for you. But for the most part, you really did start letting people know how you felt, let them know what you were feeling, describing your pain. Um, like sparklers, you know, so when they would push on your bladder, a uh, bladder infection would be like, I feel sparklers going off. So, which is different than an ice pick going through a kidney. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we tried to get you to express things to the best of your ability at early age. Cause it's, it's hard to treat animals and kids. 
you know, yeah. because there's they can't give you a response. They can't give you a response. So I tried to make it and that stupid scale one to 10, what's your pain? That's just stupid. Well, yeah, there's different types of pain. There's different types of pain. And I'm assuming a chainsaw cutting my arm off would be a 10. So everything below that's going to start at a five. So I, I just, I don't like those pain charts. Yeah. And I, I don't either. Probably for the same reason. <laughs> But not just not accurate. I always and it's relative it too. You know, it could be worse. So, so I was just always involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, and then at some point, then it would be, it would be like, well, what what are we going to do about this? So, what advice would you give to a parent or a potential parent to a kid with a long term medical condition? Like if your best friend all of a sudden found out her child's going to have bladder astrophy, what would you tell her? Well, I think, you know, you, you have to be your child's advocate. You cannot rely on the doctors to know how, what's going on. If every single little body is different and how you respond to things are different, how you respond to medication is different. You know, ev- everything is different in every single little human being. So you really have to pay attention to how your child is responding to things. And for example, you were staying dry for little tiny periods. You know, once we, once we went to that, to the next doctor, it was like, well, yeah, she is. So you just have to pay attention to those things and and not to be in la la land and, you know, see things through rose colored glasses necessarily. And sometimes you may need to do the opposite and really try to get more help for your child than the doctor's offering, but you need to learn as much as you can about it and then find, find the right people for, for them. You know, and a big thing is, is, you know, you did talk about, or you, you had asked me previously about, you know, what was the thought process and how did the thought process differ from the emotional response or processing of a situation? And I think that's, that's a big, that's a key. You have to keep them separate because, you know, emotionally I might want to cry because, you know, you're going through something and you're being tortured, you know, in, in the hospital, they're doing horrible things to you. And you have, have to separate yourself from that and be able to think clearly through the situation. And if you're busy having your own emotional outburst or whatever, you, you're not able to be there for your child's emotional outburst. You're not able to think clearly about what needs to happen next. And you really have to keep them separate. You know, people say it's very important to express yourself emotionally and yes, it is, but you need to pick your time to do that. I think that's the biggest part is get outside yourself and be there for your child. And then really try to, again, not let your child feel like a victim or like they can't do something. You know, they, they can do anything. Yeah. You just might have to change that thing a little bit, and, <laughs> but, you know, make it a little more realistic, but you never want to burst a bubble. You never want to. Yeah. But that, but big part of it is keeping the, the thought, the clear thought, clear thinking and being able to process things and try to keep emotion out of it and then deal with the emotional part at an appropriate time. Right. Right. But at the same time, also, I mean, listen to your gut as well when it's telling you something's wrong. Absolutely. But like with our yeah. Stanford doctor, right. The instinct when you first met her was, I want to like you, but I don't. Right. I wanted to have, I wanted to feel relief. I wanted to yeah. feel like I'm in the right spot. And instead it was like, okay, interesting. Yeah. That she and then, would and then logic and, you know, events after that showed that your gut first reaction was correct about that. So, yeah, there, I mean, I, do I have time to tell you another little story? Yeah, go for it. So, so there was one time after a doctor's appointment, when we went, we were going to stay over oh, a couple days in Seattle and do a little shopping and you, you weren't feeling particularly well you weren't quite acting right. And, and I blamed it on the Seattle hospital was a teaching hospital. So a lot of times you had different doctors involved and, you know, baby doctors involved and um, <laughs> baby doctors. <laughs> yeah. And, and there was one that kind of, I didn't particularly 
connect with. And then finally your doctor came in and kind of salvaged the situation. And, but you were just, you weren't responding quite right. You, you weren't right. And then we went back to the hotel room, your, you and your aunt and me, and, and you got a fever and, and then you were, you were pretty sick. This was right after the major surgery when I was 11. Yeah. And, and actually we'd already been home. We'd, yes. we'd already, we were there for two weeks and then we had come home and then we were going back up basically for a checkup and a quickie little, probably don't want to talk about it thing. And, <laughs> <clears throat> and, um, so this was supposed to be the fun part. I always tried to go up there with enough time that we did something fun. So it's like, if you had a doctor's appointment, we went to the zoo or we would go shopping or we do the horse and buggy ride. We'd do something. Right. Um, so this was, we were going to be staying downtown, which was not my favorite hotel with the first time we'd stayed here. It was, but it was supposed to be fun. You were supposed to be healthy. Yeah. So you're growing up, horrible things are coming out of you all over the place. And we're just in a regular hotel. There's no restaurant in this hotel. I have to send your aunt out to get food who was discombobulated enough that she came back with cheesecake for dinner and a slice for dessert. So we split one for dinner and we split one for dessert and that just didn't bode well for thinking processes. But anyway, I called and I said, you know, she's, she's really sick. You know, can you, can you check that urine sample and let me know? Well, test results weren't back yet. And this was the first time I've ever had a bad experience at that doctor's office and kind of just at your surgeon's office. And, and he was pissed afterwards that this whole thing came down this way, but you know, she's, she's like, well, those tests are, I'm like, but you can, I, we don't necessarily need to know what it is, but is it there, which you can tell right away. You're just waiting it to grow to see what kind of antibiotic thing, but is, is it a bad sample to begin with? Does she have an infection? And the woman actually said, well, could it be the flu? And I'm sitting there on the phone thinking, well, it could be the flu. I can't say it's not in the, the middle flu. of August, but I'm, but she doesn't get sick. She, I mean, you didn't get sick. You didn't get colds. You didn't, you just went right into like trying to die on me. I and remember that. Oh so, yeah. And <laughs> you know, but I couldn't tell her it wasn't the flu because I, it could have been the flu. You know, but it could also but, be a bladder infection. Exactly. That now was going to kidneys and beyond. And, you know, so it wasn't until I had you in the bathroom and I'm holding you up. And, and then you asked about the farmer in the bathtub. There was a farmer in the bathtub. And I'm like, oh, we're going to the hospital because you're hallucinating now. <laughs> and the minute you said it, you knew that there was something wrong. Like there couldn't be a farmer in the bathtub and you're looking at me confused. And that was when we just brought the car around and I just took you straight to the emergency room. And of course you didn't have the flu, but you know, it's those things, you know, that in hindsight, it was like, why did I let her put this off for a whole nother 24 hours? Because then you were in the hospital, you know, for over a week and it was bad. And, you know, so I see that Yes, I can blame her. I can also blame myself because I should have pushed harder, you know, and I even had Jean there with me and and we both kick ourselves about that. It was like, we knew it wasn't the flu, you know, so you really just have to, you have to go with your gut. Yeah. Even if it had been the flu and I was wrong, it would have been better to just take you in. Right. Right. And so prefacing that you also, you're 11 year old shopaholic when you asked if I wanted to go to the mall after the doctor's appointment said no yeah so that Which was is, shopping. yeah and that then was- after I was taken to the hospital um wasn't I quarantined for a few days was that the infection that I was quarantined yeah 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 you and when we got to the emergency room and I, I carried you in it was back when I could still lift you. Um, (laughs) and, and also you had lost so much weight just in that little, between the major surgery and everything else, you were just like, you were like 70 something pounds or something, but, but I brought you into the emergency room. Your aunt went to park the car and I sat down and you just sprawled across the lady's desk and said something about being at the airport, which was just an awesome way to get us streamlined right into the back. Right. Yeah. There was, there was barely any intake. They just took you right back. Yeah. 
because we weren't at, we weren't at the airport. <laughs> no, no. And I also had like no muscle control, so I couldn't sit up. I just right. You were just down flopped. on the desk that you put me in front of, and yeah, you just flopped. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last question. Okay. Did you ever wish that I was born without bladder atrophy? Well, now that's a loaded question. Um, I. I know I even gave you these questions in advance to prepare and it's still a hard one. <laughs> so, cause I could answer it 16 different ways, you know, right. and I think I've settled down with no. And the reason for that is I don't even want to say the word bad, but you know, bad things, things happen throughout your life. And again, it's how you deal with them. And I think, you know, and, and how you overcome them. And it's your experiences that really define you as a person and how you've come out of it. And I think it's made you a stronger, more independent person. I think it's made you, it's just made you stronger. I mean, even people, when you were in elementary school would say, oh, she speaks so well with adults. She communicates so well. Well, that was partly because you were communicating with nurses and doctors and, and able to carry on those kinds of conversations And so talking to somebody's mother was no big deal. I think it's made you a much stronger person and empathetic to other people. I think it's made you more well-rounded. I think, I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's done well for you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were in a, we were in a grocery store one time and you, there was, I want, he was taller than his mom. So he probably was, you know, 16, 17, 18, even taller than that. And he was walking behind his mom in the grocery store and he was barking and making other noises as he walked behind her and you were pushing the cart and we're just going through the grocery store. And, you know, I, I got something and I put it in the cart and you're just sitting there very, or leaning on the cart very thoughtfully. And you said, I'm really lucky that I had the birth defect I did. And, you know, I know what you meant, you know, but it was an interesting way to put it. But bottom line is, yes, you could have been born with any birth defect or something horrible could have happened, right? We could have been hit by a bus in the parking lot of the hospital. But in terms of the birth defect, nobody needed to know there was anything wrong with you unless you chose to share it. And that was what you meant. You meant, I, I am a fully functioning, communicating human being, and only people I am close to, do I even need to share that there's something wrong or something going on? And in that, in turn, can be viewed as a blessing. So there you go. I think that's, that's my answer. <laughs> it, it also made you a lot stronger. Yeah. I mean, it made our whole family a lot stronger Yeah, learning from it and being able to handle it and make those hard decisions. And, and I think both you and John were probably closer to your aunts because of it. Yes. And then you would have maybe been, and I, for me, certainly closer to them. And I think it made the, you know, our little family much more tight knit as we went through things over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's, you know, it, it helped. I don't want to say it helped through your teenage years. It helped me as a parent through your teenage years, I think, (laughs) because you did have a procedure almost every year for a while. So you would just be getting to like some sort of rebellious stage where you were just being a pain in the ass, 13 year old hormonal girl. And all of a sudden, next thing, you know, you're clinging to me for comfort and dependent and, and appreciating that I was there for you. So it's like, you'd go from hating me one week to appreciating the fact that I was your mother the next week. And it, so I think it pulled us out of a lot of rebelliousness that a lot of your friends went through because it just reminded you that, you know, your, your parents love you and we're doing the best we can. And you don't necessarily need to rebel. We could just skip that stage. And I think we, I think we did pretty well with that. You know, it, it came and went obviously, but I think it actually helped us out through that period because yeah. it, it made us close through the, the whole thing. And we were, we had to work together. Yeah, I think so too. I do remember a lot of like your friends or my friend's parents would comment that we always seemed very close and yeah, it was noticeable. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Oh, I'll probably think of things for the next week over and over again. We can certainly do this again and go more in depth on different topics because there's tons to talk about. So there, there is, you know, it's, you know, I mean, dealing with things in the hospital and just, you know, how to cope with things and how to make the right decisions. I mean, those are all com- just complete huge topics. And a big part of it, again, though, is keeping that emotional away from the thought process and really trying to figure out what is best in the long run. There you go. Thanks for joining us for episode two of Body Talk with Bex. Uh, I hope you guys heard a few things that might be helpful for you or enlightening in any way. Um, We always welcome feedback, so reach out if you have any more questions that you'd like to ask us. I'd love to have her back to discuss a few more things in detail. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe anywhere that you listen to your podcasts.